Section 14 of The Broad Highway by Geoffrey Farnell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by John Leader. Book 1, Chapter 34, which describes sundry happenings at the fair, and ends this first book. I say, young cove, where are you a pushin' of? The speaker was a very tall individual, whose sharp-pointed elbow had, more than once, obtruded itself into my ribs. He was extremely thin and bony, with a long, drooping nose set very much to one side, and was possessed of a remarkable pair of eyes, that is to say, one eyelid hung continually lower than the other, thus lending to his otherwise sinister face an air of droll and unexpected waggery that was quite startling to behold. All about us were jostling throngs of men and women in snowy smock-frocks and holiday gowns who pushed, or were pushed, laughed, or frowned, according to their several natures, while above the merry hubbub rose the blare of trumpets, the braying of horns, and the crash and rattle of drums. In a word, I was in the middle of an English country fair. "'Now then, young cove,' repeated the man I have alluded to, where are you a pushin of? Don't do it again, or mind your eye. And saying this, he glared balefully at me with one eye, and leered jocosely with the other, and into my ribs came his elbow again. You seem to be able to do something in that way yourself, I retorted. Oh, do I? Yes, said I. Suppose you take your elbow out of my waistcoat. Elber? repeated the man. What do you mean by elber? "'This,' said I, catching his arm in no very gentle grip. "'If it's a fight you're wantin', begged the man. "'It isn't,' said I. "'Then let go my arm.' "'Then keep your elbow to yourself. "'God! I never see such a hot-headed cove.' "'Nor I a more bad-tempered one.' This altercation had taken place as we swayed to and fro in the crowd, from which we now slowly won free, owing chiefly to the dexterous use of the man's bony elbows, until we presently found ourselves in a veritable jungle of carts and wagons, of all kinds and sorts, where we stopped facing each other. "'I'm inclined to think, young cove, as you'd be short-tempered if you'd been shaded by your fellow men from your youth up,' said the man. "'What do you mean by shied at?' "'What I says.' some professions is easy and some is hard like mine and what is yours i'm a professional sambo a what well a niggerhead then blacks me face sticks my head through a hole and lets em shy at me three shies a penny them as itch me gets a cigar a big un them as don't don't yours is a very unpleasant profession said i a man must live but said i supposing you get hit them as it's me gets a cigar doesn't it hurt you oh you gets used to it though to be sure they don't hit me very often or it would be a loss cigars is expensive leastways they cost money but surely a wooden image would serve your turn just as well a wooden image exclaimed the man disgustedly james you must be a fool you must who wants to throw at a wooden image? You can't hurt a wooden image, can you? If you throwed Evans hard at a wooden image, that there wooden image wouldn't flinch, would it? 
when a man throws at anything he likes to eat it that's human and when he eats it he likes to see it flinch that's human too and when it flinches why he rubs his hands and takes another shot and that's the humanist of all so you see young cove you're a fool with your wooden image now as he ended i stooped very suddenly and caught hold of his wrist and then i saw that he held my purse in his hands it was a large hand with bony knuckles and very long fingers upon one of which was a battered ring he attempted at first to free himself of my grip but finding this useless stood glowering at me with one eye and leering with the other ha said i hello said he a purse said i why so it is he nodded well, leastways it looks uncommonly like one don't it what's more it looks like mine does it i could swear to it anywhere could you i could then perhaps you'd better take it young cove and very welcome i'm sure so you've been picking my pocket said i oh, never picked a pocket in my life should scorn to i put away my recovered property and straightway shifted my grip to the fellow's collar now said i come on why what are you a-doin of what does one generally do with a pickpocket but i had hardly uttered the words when with a sudden cunning twist he broke my hold and my foot catching in a guy-rope i tripped and fell heavily and ere i could rise he had made good his escape i got to my feet somewhat shaken by the fall yet congratulating myself on the recovery of my purse and threading my way among the tents was soon back among the crowds here were circuses and shows of all kinds where one might behold divers strange beasts the usual fat woman and skeleton men who ever heard of the order being reversed and before the shows were fellows variously attired but each being purplish of visage and each possessing the lungs of a stentor more especially one a round-bellied bottle-nosed fellow in a white hat who alternately roared and beat upon a drum a red-haired man was he with a fiery eye which eye chancing to single me out in the crowd fixed itself pertinaciously upon me thenceforth so that he seemed to address himself exclusively to me thus all my stars young man bang goes the drum the wonderful wild aryan savage man from banhula as each snakes alive and dresses himself into sheeny serpents oh my eye step up young man bang likewise the astonishing and beautiful lady polinolati as will swallow swords sabres bayonets also chewing up glass and bottles quicker than you can wink young man bang not to mention catamaplasus the fire fiend what burns itself with red-hot irons and likes it drinks liquid fire with gusto playfully spitting forth the same together with flame and sulphur smoke and all for sixpence young man bang oh my stars step up young man and all for a tanner bang 
Presently his eye being off me for the moment, I edged my way out of the throng, and so came to where a man stood mounted upon a cart. Beside him was a fellow in a clown's habit, who blew loudly three times upon a trumpet, which done, the man took off his hat and began to harangue the crowd, something in this wise. "'I come before you, ladies and gentlemen, not for vulgar gain, or as I might say, a kudos, which is I Italian for the same, not to put my hands into your pockets, and rifle em of your honestly earned money. No, I come before you for the good of each one of you, for the easing of suffering mankind, as I might say, the humiliation of stricken humanity. In a word, I am here to introduce to you what I call my elixir anthropos. Anthropos, ladies and gentlemen, is an old and very ancient Egyptian word meaning man, or woman, for that matter, etc. During this exordium I had noticed a venerable man in a fine blue surtout and a wide-brimmed hat, who sat upon the shaft of a cart and puffed slowly at a great pipe, and as he puffed he listened intently to the quacksalver's address, and from time to time his eyes would twinkle and his lips curve in an ironic smile. The cart, upon the shaft of which he sat, stood close to a very small, dirty, and disreputable-looking tent, towards which the old gentleman's back was turned. Now, as I watched, I saw the point of a knife gleam through the dirty canvas, which, vanishing, gave place to a hand protruded through the slit thus made, a very large hand with bony knuckles, and long fingers, upon one of which was a battered ring. For an instant the hand hovered undecidedly, then darted forward, the long skirts of the old gentleman's coat hardly stirred, yet even as I watched I saw the hand vanish with a fat purse in its clutches. Skirting the tent, I came round to the opening, and, stooping, peered cautiously inside. There, sure enough, was my pickpocket, gazing intently into the open purse, and chuckling as he gazed. Then he slipped it into his pocket, and out he came, where I immediately pinned him by the neckerchief. And after a while, finding he could not again break my hold, he lay still beneath me, panting, and, as he lay, his one eye glared more balefully, and his other leered more waggishly than ever as I, thrusting my hand into his pocket, took thence the purse, and transferred it to my own. "'Aves, mate,' he panted, "'aves, and we'll cry quits.' "'By no means,' said I, rising to my feet, but keeping my grip upon him. "'Then what's your game?' "'I intend to hand you over as a pickpocket.' "'That means transportation,' said he, wiping the blood from his face, for the struggle, though short, had been sharp enough. "'Well,' said I, "'it'll go hard with that babby.' "'Baby!' I exclaimed. "'Ah, or the infant, if you like it better. One is I found in a shawl, a-laying on the steps of my van one night, sleeping like a alderman. And it were snowing, too.' "'Yet you are a thief. We calls it uh, faking. And ought to be given up to the authorities.' "'And who's to look after the baby?' "'Are you married?' "'No.' "'Where is the baby?' 
in my van. And where is that? Yonder. And he pointed to a gaily painted caravan that stood nearby. He's asleep now, but if you'd like to take a peep at him. I should, said I. Whereupon the fellow led me to his van, and, following him up the steps, I entered a place which, though confined, was wonderfully neat and clean, with curtains at the open windows, a rug upon the floor, and an ornamental brass lamp pendant from the roof. At the far end was a bed, or rather berth, curtained with shints, and upon this bed his chubby face pillowed upon a dimpled fist lay a very small man indeed and looking up from him to the very large bony man bending over him, I surprised a look upon the hardened face, a tenderness that seemed very much out of place. "'Nice and fat, ain't he?' said the man, touching the baby's apple-like cheek with a grimy finger. "'Yes.' "'Ah, and so he should be, James. But you should see him eat. An alderman's nothing to Lewis. I calls him Lewis, for twere at Lewisham I found him on a Christmas Eve. Snowman it was, but by James it didn't bother him, not a bit. And why did you keep him? There was the parish. Parish! repeated the man bitterly. I were brought up by the parish myself, and a nice job they made of me. Don't you find him a great trouble? Trouble? exclaimed the man. Lewis ain't no trouble, not a bit, never was. And he's great company when I'm on the move from one town to another, learning to talk already. Now, said I, when he had descended from the van, I propose to return this purse to the owner. If he is to be found, if not, I shall hand it to the proper authorities. Walker! exclaimed the man. You shall yourself witness the restitution, said I, unheeding his remark, after which, well said he, glancing back toward his caravan, and moistening his lips as I tightened my grip upon his arm. "'What about me?' "'You can go. For Lewis's sake, if you will give me your word to live honestly henceforth.' Oh, "'You have it, sir. I swear it. On the Bible, if you like.' "'Then let us seek the owner of this purse.' So, coming in a while to where the quack doctor was still holding forth, there, yet seated upon the shaft of the cart, puffing at his great pipe, was the venerable man. At sight of him the pickpocket stopped and caught my arm. "'Come, master,' said he, "'come, you never mean to give up all that good money. There's fifty guineas, and more in that purse.' "'All the more reason to return it,' said I. "'No, don't. Don't go a-wasting good money like that. It's like throwing it away.' But shaking off the fellow's importunate hand, I approached and saluted the venerable man. "'Sir,' said I, "'you have had your pocket-picked. He turned and regarded me with a pair of deep-set, very bright eyes, and blew a whiff of smoke slowly into the air. "'Sir,' he replied, "'I found that out five minutes ago.' "'The fact seems to trouble you very little,' said I. "'There, sir, being young and judging exteriorly, you are wrong. "'There is recounted somewhere in the classics an altogether incredible story "'of a Spartan youth and a fox. "'The boy, with the animal hid beneath his cloak, "'preserved an unruffled demeanour despite the animal's tearing teeth, 
until he fell down and died. In the same way, young sir, no man can lose fifty-odd guineas from his pocket and remain unaffected by the loss. Then, sir, said I, I am happy to be able to return your purse to you. He took it, opened it, glanced over its contents, looked at me, took out two guineas, looked at me again, put the money back, closed the purse, and, dropping it into his pocket, bowed his acknowledgment. Having done which, he made room for me to sit beside him. <laughs> Sir, said he, chuckling, hark to that lovely rascal in the cart yonder, hark to him. Galen was an ass, and Hippocrates a dunce beside this fellow. Hark to him. "'There's nothing like peels,' the quacksilver was saying at the top of his voice. "'Place one upon the tip of the tongue, in this fashion. Take a drink of water, beer or wine, as the case may be. Give a couple of swallows, and there you are. Oh, there's a nothing in the world like pills, and there's a nothing like my elixir anthropos for coughs, colds, and the rheumatics, for sore throats, sore eyes, sore backs, good for the croup, measles, and chicken pox, a certain cure for dropsy, scurvy, and the king's evil. There's no disease or ailment discovered or invented as my pills won't soothe, heal, ameliorate, and charm away, and all I charge is one shilling a box. Hand em round, Jonas. Whereupon the fellow in the clown's dress, stepping down from the cart, began handing out the boxes of pills and taking in the shillings as fast as he conveniently could. A thriving trade, said my venerable companion. It always has been and always will, for humanity is a many-headed fool and loves to be bamboozled. These honest folk are probably paying for bread pellets, compounded with a little soap, yet will go home, swallow them in all good faith, and think themselves a great deal better for them. And therefore, said I, probably derive as much benefit from them as from any drug yet discovered. Young man, said my companion, giving me a sharp glance, what do you mean? Plainly, sir, that a man who believes himself cured of a disease is surely on the high road to recovery. But a belief in the efficacy of that rascal's bread pellets cannot make them anything but bread pellets. No, said I, but it may affect great things with the disease. Young man, don't tell me that you are a believer in faith-healing and such like tomfoolery. Disease is a great and terrible reality, and must be met and overcome by a real means. Oh, on the contrary, sir, may it not be rather the outcome of a preconceived idea, of a belief that has been held universally for many ages and generations of men? I do not deny disease who could, but suffering and disease have been looked upon from the earliest days as punishments wrought out upon a man for his sins. Now may not the haunting fear of this retributive justice be greatly responsible for suffering and disease of all kinds, since the mind unquestionably reacts upon the body? Probably, sir, probably, but since disease is with us, how would you propose to remedy it? By disbelieving in it, 
by regarding it as something abnormal and utterly foreign to the divine order of things. Pooh! exclaimed my venerable companion. Bah! Quite, quite impracticable! They say the same of the servant on the mount, sir, I retorted. Can a man, wasting away in a decline, discredit the fact that he is dying with every breath he draws? Had you, or I, or any man, the Christ-power to teach him a disbelief in his sickness, then would he be hale and well. The great physician healed all diseases thus, without the aid of drugs, seeking only to implant in the mind of each sufferer the knowledge that he was whole and sound, that is to say, a total disbelief in his malady. How many times do we read the words, Thy faith hath made thee whole? All he demanded of them was faith, or, as I say, a disbelief in their disease. Then the cures of Christ were not miracles? No more than any great and noble work is a miracle. And do you, inquired my companion, removing his pipe from his lips, and staring at me very hard, do you believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God? Yes, said I in the same way that you and I are, and the quacksalver yonder. But was he divine? Oh, surely a mighty thinker, a great teacher whose hand points the higher way, whose words inspire humanity to nobler ends and aims, is, of necessity, divine. You are a very bold young man, and talk, I think, a little wildly. Heterodoxy has been styled so before, sir. And a very young, young man. Well, that, sir, will be amended by time. Here, puffing at his pipe and finding it gone out, he looked at me in surprise. Remarkable, said he. What is, sir? While I listened to you, I have actually let my pipe go out, a thing which rarely happens with me. As he spoke, he thrust one hand into his pocket, when he glanced slowly round, and back once more to me. "'Remarkable,' said he again. "'What now, sir?' "'My purse has gone again!' "'What, gone?' I ejaculated. "'Vanished,' said he, and, to prove his words, turned inside out first one pocket and then the other. "'Come with me,' said I, springing up. There is yet a chance that we may possibly recover it. Forthwith I led him to where had stood a certain gaily painted caravan. But it was gone, vanished as utterly as my companion's purse. Most annoying, said he, shaking his venerable head. Really, most exasperating. I particularly wish to secure a sample of that fellow's pills. The collection of quack remedies is a fad of mine, as it is. "'My purse is entirely at your disposal, sir,' said I, "'though, to be sure, a very—' "'But there I stopped, staring in my turn blankly at him. "'Ha!' he exclaimed, his eyes twinkling. "'Yes,' I nodded. "'The rascal made off with my purse also. "'We are companions in misfortune.' "'Then, as such, young sir, come and dine with me. "'My habitation is but a little way off.' "'Thank you, sir, but I am half expecting to meet with certain good friends of mine, "'though I am none the less honoured by your offer.' "'So be it, young sir,' 
then permit me to wish you a very good day and touching the brim of his hat with the long stem of his pipe the venerable man turned and left me howbeit though i looked diligently on all hands i saw nothing of simon or the ancient thus evening was falling as bending my steps homeward i came to a part of the fair where drinking booths had been set up and where they were preparing to roast an ox whole as is the immemorial custom drinking was going on with its usual accompaniment of boisterous merriment and rough horseplay the vulgarity of which ever annoys me two or three times i was rudely jostled as i made my way along so that my temper was already something the worse when turning aside to avoid all this i came full upon two fellows well-to-do farmers by their look who held a struggling girl between them to each of whom i reached out a hand and gripping them firmly by their collars brought their two heads together with a sounding crack and then i saw that the girl was prudence next moment we were running hand in hand with the two fellows roaring in pursuit but prudence was wonderfully fleet and light of foot wherefore doubling and turning among carts tents and booths we had soon outstripped our pursuers and rid ourselves of them altogether in spite of which prudence still ran on till catching her foot in some obstacle she tripped and would have fallen but for my arm and looking down into her flushed face glowing through the sweet disorder of her glossy curls i could not but think how lovely she was but as i watched the color fled from her cheeks her eyes dilated and she started away from me now turning hastily i saw that we were standing close by a certain small dirty and disreputable-looking tent the canvas of which had been slit with a knife and my movement had been quick enough to enable me to see a face vanish through the canvas and fleeting though the glimpse had been yet in the lowering brow the baleful glare of the eye and the set of the great jaw i had seen death and after we had walked on a while together looking at prue i noticed that she trembled oh mr peter she whispered glancing back over her shoulder did you see yes prudence i saw and speaking i also glanced back towards the villainous little tent and though the face appeared no more i was aware nevertheless of a sudden misgiving that was almost like a foreboding of evil to come for in those features disfigured though they were with black rage and passion i had recognized the face of black george a word to the reader remembering the very excellent advice of my friend the tinker as to the writing of a good novel I am perturbed, and not a little discouraged, upon looking over these pages to find that I have, as yet, described no desperate hand-to-hand -hand encounters, no hair-breadth escapes, unless a bullet through one's hat may be justly so regarded, and above all, not one word of love. You, sir, who have expectantly borne with me thus far, may be tempted to close the book in a huff, and, hurling it from you with a deep-voice anathema, clap on your hat and sally forth into the sunshine or you madam 
breathing a sigh or hopes deferred, may take up needle and silk and turn you once again to that embroidery which has engaged your dainty fingers this twelfth month and more, yet which, like Penelope's web, would seem no nearer completion. Ah, well, sir, exercise, especially walking, is highly beneficial to the liver, they tell me, and nothing, madam, believe me, unless it be playing the harp, can show off a pretty hand or the delicate curves of a shapely wrist and arm to such advantage as that selfsame embroidery. But since needlework, like books and all sublunary things, is apt to grow monotonous, you may, perchance, for lack of better occupation, be driven to address yourself once more to this my narrative and since you sir no matter how far you walk must of necessity return to your chair and chimney-corner it is possible that having dined adequately and lighted your pipe and being therefore in a more charitable and temperate frame of mind you may lift my volume from the dusty corner where it has lain all this while and though probably with sundry grunts and snorts indicative that the thing is done under protest as it were reopen these pages in the hope which, dear madam, and you, noble sir, I here commence this, my second book, which, as you see, is headed thus, The Woman. End of section 14 and end of book 1. Recording by John Leader, Bloomington, Illinois.